Welcome all of you on the internet. It's March the 5th, 2017. Lecture discussion number 273 on the book of Romans, which means if this is the first time you have come, then you have only missed 272 of them. So it shouldn't be a problem. Anyway, uh, there actually is somebody here today that has missed the first 272, in case you wonder why I said that. We've pretty much concluded our first run-through of the trial of Adam and Eve again. It's not our first run-through, as you all know. More like our 20th run-through, or our 20th first run. And first is a relative term here at beautiful downtown Cliffside. It's not beautiful, it's not downtown, and we're nowhere near a cliff. So none of that is correct. All of that, it's relative terms, I guess is what I'm saying to you. And I've asked, I'm often asked, I'm many, many times, I get lots of letters this way, why do you, balding, one-eyed, thick-waisted old man, continually make this relative term comment? Always this relative term identifier, why, 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 they wail. And I might be overstating that just a bit. The portrayal may not be completely accurate. It is the case that some want to know, and some is a relative term, but some want to know the purpose of why I keep saying relative term, this relative term thing. And I'm flattered that they assume I have a purpose. That's actually encouraging to me. And I really do have a reason, as shocking as that may seem. You see, the question is not, it is not what is a relative term. The question is, what is not a relative term? That's what I'm trying to do to you. Or if you prefer, make a list of things that are not relative terms. And feel free to devote the entire lecture time to that and the puzzle and the bulletin while I, that's my free gift. So if you want to just go over that direction, you certainly can. I'm going to continue onward, but I want you to think about what is not a relative term and why do we have not relative terms as opposed to relative terms. That's philosophy. Have fun. We have come to the place where it is necessary to return to the beginning of where we started about three to four lectures ago and re-rake the ground a bit, searching for the other questions that I have intentionally not brought to the fore. We started at Genesis 3-2, so we're going to restart. It's prudent to restart at Genesis 3-2 today. Again, why this focus on the trial of Adam and Eve? Why do I spend so much time on the Internet? How many lectures do we have on the Internet now? Over a thousand, I think, don't we? Um, how many of them are on Adam and Eve? I would say 50 yeah. Why do I have this focus on Adam and Eve? And I, I explain it this way. Adam and Eve is so important because it's how we begin Scripture, first and foremost. I, I had on the board the other day, everything returns to the first seven. All sevens are the first, return to the first seven. The first seven is the creation seven. The trial of Adam and Eve is, a, is the second seven in Scripture. It's over a, a seven Period. How, how many sevens? Yet to be determined. I haven't told you what I think yet, but it could be seven weeks, it could be seven months, or it could be seven days. But there is a seven. It could be seven years. It could be 70 years. 
The first seven is the creation seven. This is the second seven. And this is the one, unfortunately, that is diminished by the church. And because the church has diminished the trial of Adam and Eve and what is going on in the first four or five chapters of Scripture, that because they have set it aside as insignificant, I believe they have, they have set the, sent the church to ruin. So I'm fighting. This is where I'll explain adjacency and contextual nearness again. Anytime you find something adjacent to something else in the Bible, it's always related. Always. There's never a case where it's not related. That's contextual nearness, or context if you wish. So I'm trying to, and Adam and Eve is a place where no one seems to be aware that this is, is adjacent to that. And they are side by side. They're literally the immediacy of them. The proximity. It's there. And yet they think they're independent. And um, the letter that I got that criticized me went on that premise. Said that I had misrepresented a particular passage of Scripture. And my point to that person would be, well, all I did was look at what was before it and what was after it. And assume that it was all connected. Because it is. Sorry that that wasn't taught to you. Not really. Fake sorry. I've noticed that people have stolen my not really fake sorry. But you all know I've been doing it for 20 years. They're listening to me, these people. And they're stealing my stuff. We have, we have legal opportunities. We can improve the buffet. I can just get a pro bono attorney to help me out here on... Sorry, not really fake sorry. And a couple of others, Lori keeps pointing out, hey, they stole that from you. Yes, they did. There's no possibility I stole it from them. Okay, second, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, verse 2. Let's, uh, let's start at verse 1. 3, 1 through 5. That's where, where we're going to be today. Again, I know again. Now, the serpent was much more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, we know the serpent of Genesis 3, 1 is Satan himself. We're told that in the book of Revelation. He is the serpent of old. So let me uh, make that as clear as I can. I'll repeat it now so I don't get lost. Now, the serpent, which is Satan, the serpent of old, was more cunning than any beast of the field. So he's more cunning. Satan is more cunning. How cunning is he? Do not underestimate the intelligence of the anointed cherub, which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God, for, for, I'm sorry, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God, knowing good from evil. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's where we are. Okay, immediately sub, subsequent to the building of the woman. So here's my con, con, contextual adjacency or nearness. Immediately subsequent to the building of the woman with respect to the order of Scripture. 
is this Genesis 3, 1 through 5, the cunning serpent. And do not presuppose that the order of Genesis is chronological or time proximate or soon to take place. There may be great distances in time, and usually there is. That is the Hebrew principle of double reference. No time to discuss that today. But how much time vicinity between any two events has to be, you have to put effort into that. That is not a, a, a simple thing to surmise. You have to be, it has to be evaluated in order to determine the time that elapses. And I hope that makes sense. It might not have. So let's put this on the board. So you might be able to follow me for the first time ever. The building of Eve, so I have, and the Bible actually calls it the building of Eve, or the woman, building of the woman. I left out the the on purpose to go fast. The building of, don't send me mail. The building of the woman, uh, the leaving from the side, and that is, the word is sella, and it means side, it does not mean rib, and you see this now continuation of the typology of Adam. Out of the side of Adam comes the woman. Out of the side of Christ comes the woman, the church, the bride, right? So you know that this is based on that continuity that the word, in fact, does mean side. So out of the, and I don't disagree that bone and flesh came out of the side. So out of the side of Adam, the building of Eve occurs. You see this one flesh description, and then, uh, and then the naked and not ashamed. That is immediately, did I spell it right? Yes, I did. That is immediately before the cunning serpent. What comes after building of the woman from the side of Adam, the one flesh, the naked, not ashamed, this next that comes immediately after that is this attack by Satan. Again, how much time is between? If you think it's immediate, I'm going to tell you that's not defensible logically. I'll explain why. But in Scripture, they are side by side. Which means to me that that nearness, that placement, that order tells me that one is affected by the other. To repeat, the building of Eve from the side of Adam, the leaving of the father and mother, the one flesh, the naked and not ashamed, not ashamed, are connected to what occurs next. And what comes next is the attack of Satan, Satan's attempt to murder the man by killing the woman. That's his plan. Again, the time lapse is to be established. Having said that, we can conclude that these are placed in order with purpose by the Holy Spirit with nothing intermediate because they are directly, intrinsically related and interconnected. The woman from the man bears onto the actions and the motives of Satan as do the other components. So I can say Satan attacks because of these things. Always try to ask, what is the cause and effect? What causes this? What caused the attack? Something there. 
which cause is traceable to what effect. My methodology, as you know, is a constant awareness of this side-by-side placement in Scripture. I submit it's correct. Some, again, a relative term, disagree with me adamantly. They will pull the attack of Satan out, make it completely autonomous, and ignore that which is in front of it and that which is behind it, and draw conclusions based on it singularly. I think that is horribly wrong. And I say so, and it makes people mad at me. Why don't they see it my way? I know you ask. Some of you are laughing. It seems obvious to me, but it's not. The church is the opposite of what I think is correct. It is. So Satan asks this incredible question. Yea, hath God said. And some translations have it this way. Has has God indeed said? What's implied there? The question's incredible in the sense that it is implying what? The negative. It's implying that God hasn't said it. Or it's calling, it's carrying the insinuation that God is not forthcoming. And that's the first time in scripture that God's character is being discussed in a negative way. That's important. First mentions are important. Did God say, did he say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did he say that? No, he did not say that. What did he say? God commanded the man, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Freely. Freely. Let's put it on here a lot. Freely eat. Genesis 2.16, for those keeping track on the internet. And let me repeat that. God commanded the man. It wasn't a suggestion. The word is commanded. And notice that Satan omitted that element. He omitted that this was an order from God. Not only did he omit that it was a commandment or an order, a direct order from the Creator, he also withdrew the freely or the free will. So now I know that this and this are about that. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. As soon as I can tell that the woman and Satan, but Satan primarily here first, omits the freely from that order from God and doesn't even admit, doesn't even acknowledge that it is an order, then I know that I am finding the point of all of this. And again, that's something that's often overlooked. Satan exposes his intention by what he deleted from Genesis 2.16. And Genesis 2.16 demonstrates God's insistence on something. God insists on something, and that is mankind's freedom, mankind's free will, mankind's will, a will that has the capacity to disavow the Creator. Mankind possesses the will to reject his very Creator. Now, why? Why does God give us free will? Uh, Let me repeat this part of it. We have existence. We have immortality. Free will is necessary. Not necessary, but free will is 
inseparable, inseverable from existence. If you do not have free will, you do not have existence. You do not have immortality. God makes the case perfectly and prominently, immediately in Scripture. That is what the issue of Adam and Eve and Satan is all about. Are we immortal? That's why God does it. It's proof of existence, and it also demonstrates the goodness of God. God refused to create automatons who could not voluntarily seek a relationship with him. Instead, he created living souls. And you must be a living soul in order to have free will. And you must have free will to be a living soul. And if you are a living soul, then you see you can come into a relationship with your creator. A relationship requires the will, the willingness, the freely the desire to participate in the interactions of the relationship. If one side is designed to comply, that renders the entire construct meaningless. If one side, let me, what I mean by that, if one side is forced, is designed, and cannot do anything but comply to the relationship, then the all elements of the relationship are invalidated. They're re- reduced to simpleness, tyranny. I have three dogs, as you know. 270 pounds of dogs. And my dogs are living souls. The Bible says so. If you have a Bible that says living creatures, you'll find that the word that is translated creatures is incorrect. It is, it is souls. And my 270 pounds of dogs choose to like me, I think. Notice how I said both. But even this agreement between me and the dogs is not coerced. It is a cooperative, one that is characterized on their side mostly by rebellion. They have an organized insurgency, the three dogs. They are Machiavellian, diabolical, my dogs. Clearly, they're exercising freely. I can see it. I can see it in you. I can see it in me. I can see it in any two-year-old. Go downstairs and talk to Lori and Jane. See how it's going down there. Those are not robots. Why did God, besides the fact that existence demands free will, if you haven't had that philosophical discussion before, uh, it's somewhere on the Internet. Ask Dave where I did it. Uh, it, is, it is definitive. It is without controversy. Okay, it's got some controversy, but I ignore those people. They don't choose to like me. But anyway, the, the, the dogs and I, um, this is not a coerced, Relationship. I have to produce. I have to maintain the standards to which they have become accustomed. And I have to behave in a way that uh, they deem acceptable or I face immediate conflict, reprisals, lawsuits. One of them is an attorney of the three. And the attorney will come to me and voice the displeasure of the other two. It happens like clockwork. And so I must maintain. I have to be disciplined for this 
relationship to function properly. We agree, me and the dogs, to be in the relationship. It is living soul to living soul. And right now, my poll numbers are pretty good. I'm doing great. I've got the swing vote on my side. So I'm holding the majority firmly. My point is that that's valuable, the fact that me and the dogs are choosing to love each other. That's a delight. I can't even begin to tell you how much joy I get from that. And I would not get that if the choice element, the free will, were missing. And they make it clear that they freely, willfully choose me. Mostly Lori. But I'm in there. I'm hanging in there pretty good. I'm responsible for excrement removal. And I'm good at it. (laughs) My point is, is there's a commitment, an agreement, a contract, a covenant. Those words sound familiar? Those are scriptural words. This is my micro-miniature example. This is a type of what God has placed in mankind in the angelic realm. And it is proof, and it is the truth, that he is good. It's proof of his goodness. Because this is what he has decided, chosen. He's omniscient. This is the only way it can work and be good. And he calls it good. He enters into covenants, signed contracts with his created. Those are everywhere in his Bible, in his word. Why do this if we are incapable of refusing to sign? If our signatures are worthless? If we are forced to sign? Clearly we are not. Those contracts are illustrative of our free will. Back to Genesis 2.16. That's how Genesis starts, really. After creation, we have this freedom, this will exposed. Why would he even ask us to come? Because he does. He says, come. Why even use the word come? If we are robotic automatons, we have no free will. It's irrational if mankind is powerless, if mankind is constrained, if mankind is incapable of freely eating. The vocabulary that God uses about himself is irrational. It's It's deception. And it is not an accident that as soon as God demonstrates in Scripture to Adam and Eve that they have free will, that Satan attacks and seizes upon this. And he asks the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat freely? I put the words in there, right? That's what the, the meaning is. Has God not Has God indeed said, you shall not eat freely? To which the woman responds, no, 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 no. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. What did she leave out? Freely. Uh Uh-oh. That had tremendous consequences now. I have noticed that freely is missing again. Why did she do that? The woman removes freely, but she shows shows no hesitancy to expand, include commentary on what God did command. She does that, takes away freely. And again, to repeat, God commands freely. You are you are commanded to freely eat. 
you are commanded to demonstrate your will is free. Again, dogs and three-year-olds need no such order. Anyway, the woman offers a supplement to all of this. Neither shall you, or an addendum, neither shall you touch it, she says. She omits freely, and she puts in the addendum that you can't touch it. Now, why did she say that? Clearly, this is not in the Genesis 2.16 directive. God, omniscient God, did not issue this restriction, this restrictive clause that Eve or the woman adds. The prohibition is limited to eat. The woman, to rephrase her words a bit, says it like this. God said we can't touch or eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He did not say that. So why did she? Can't touch the fruit? Can't even touch the tree? Which, what did she mean? Can't touch the tree or can't touch the fruit? Or both? Remember, the conversation has as its substrate, has as its context, has as its purpose this issue of free will. Right here. That's what we're talking about. And this is a discussion on freely. Overwhelmingly on freely. And it's free, it's everything before this discussion and everything after will be about free will. And Satan has eliminated freely from his premise. And his premise is this, as you know, we've discussed this now for three weeks. There is no real free will. That's what he is saying to her. To repeat the repeating, place before the woman is Satan's assertion to her that free will is an illusion. God knows it's an illusion, Satan says. God, Satan says, is intentionally putting forth a masquerade here. You will not surely die, and God knows you will not die, he says to her. Furthermore, if you eat the fruit, you will know all of this is a deception, and none have free will. That's what you will know. That's Satan's basic contention here. Let's do some more repeating. If I have no free will, if there is no free will, there is no relationship, there is no existence, God has lied, that means he's evil, there's no goodness, there's only nothingness, there's only a temporal state waiting to waiting its inevitable uh, revealing of your extinguishment and mine. And that is exactly what the academical institutions spew out every day without ceasing from grade school all the way through the highest graduate level in college. That's exactly what they say. You think that's coincidental? Of course it's not. To the surprise of absolutely no one anywhere ever, they do this without ceasing. No free will, no relationship, no existence. God, if he did exist, he doesn't exist. But if he did exist, he's evil. There's no goodness. There's only nothingness, hopelessness, purposelessness. We're in a temporal state. And when that temporal state is concluded, we cease in existence. Well, you can't have existence if it ceases. And the Bible is absolutely, totally opposed to that, which is the popular philosophy of the academic institutions of this country. And every country, frankly, almost now. Every country that's not in the seventh century. Sorry, not really. Fake sorry. And the woman also has excluded freely 
now in this discussion and fortified the restriction. So she took something that was demonstrative of freedom and stripped some freedom away from it. It's now less free, more suppression. What made her do that? What are the motives of this woman? Where would I find the motives of this woman? Where would I answer that question? How would I go about Today's job for you is to get out your pencil and paper like we're back in the 8th grade science class, of which none of you were at when I did it. Put your name in the upper right-hand corner. Write somewhere on it that the teacher is very attractive in order to increase the possibility that your grade will be significantly raised or provide some kind of Kentucky Fried Chicken for me. And then tell me, where will I find... What the motive of this woman is. Where in the Bible? You don't have to find the motive, but tell me where would it be. Raise your hand if you know. Don't ever raise your hand here. But where would I go? You can do this. You can yell it out and pretend it was the person next to you. I'm going to find what her motive is because it's going to be adjacent to where she has said this. Somewhere in adjacency, somewhere in proximity, somewhere in nearness here is her motive. God will tell you why she did it, what she was thinking. And he did. The reason she left out freely and the reason she added another restriction, you can't touch it. You can't even touch it. Don't touch the tree. Don't touch the fruit. Don't go near it. He tells you why. Satan implies that God is afraid that the man and the woman will discover the truth, or the woman in this case. He implies that God is afraid that Eve is going to discover the truth about their lacking of existence and will, and therefore immortality. See, here to help you, in case you missed all those lectures, what is existence made of? Where does existence come from? Who manufactures existence? How does he manufacture it? Is there an existence factory? And you go and you take something and you have existence. I have for many years considered Adam's conversation with Satan. It's not here. But I know he had one. Because in Romans 5, he is identified as a type of Christ, which if you keep reading, he is the first Adam. And he is a type. It's a great honor in Romans. That's why this is a Roman study. Christ calls himself the last Adam. That's what Christ is called. First and last. So Adam is honored in Scripture as a type of Christ. That is extraordinary. And I know that Christ had a conversation with Adam. I'm sorry, with Satan. Christ had a conversation with Satan in Matthew 4. That's my evidentiary centerpiece. So if it happened with the second Adam or the last Adam, then I know it happened with the first Adam. Now, I have I have to infer it, but I know it happened. I know it happened because I have 1 Timothy 2.14, where it is said in Bible that Adam is not deceived. Adam is not deceived. Said it thousands of times, saying it again, because I want everyone to have a firm grasp on this subject because if you don't, 
off into the ditch you will go all the way through the Bible. In order to be not deceived, he's identified as a type of Christ who was not deceived by Satan. That makes him in a subset, if you will, in a group of how many human created beings? Who can say that he is a type of Christ and that he is not deceived? How many are in your in your phone booth now? That can do that. Just him. He's the only one in all of Scripture not deceived by Satan and a type of Christ. In order to be not deceived, it would seem likely an attempt to deceive him was made. And what happened to that? How can I be not deceived if there was no attempt made? That means that the attempt failed. I I suspect that Adam saw the illogic of Satan's argument. I also assume that Satan saw the illogic of Satan's argument. How smart is Satan? He is unable to deceive Adam. How smart is Adam? Right now we know Adam is smarter than all of us because all of us have been deceived. Satan saw the flaws in his thesis Remember, he is the father of lies. He knew it was a lie. He knew it was flawed. And Adam also figured out that it was in error. And that's for another day. Let's start with this. Why would God, if he had such a fear, which is immediately a lack of omniscience, because to have fear means you're not omniscient. So if you imply that God is afraid you're going to discover something, then you have implied that God is not omniscient. If he's not omniscient, then he's not omnipotent, he is not omnipresent, and he is not omnibenevolent, always good. So therefore, you've degraded God to the point that no one can be saved. But set that aside. Why would God, let's, uh, let's grant the hypothesis just for the sake of the argument. If God had such a fear... Why would he put a test in the midst of the garden that would result in the discovery of the supposed truth? By the seeming free will creatures who were really robots. What's the point of that, Vern? Why bother even with the pretext? Keep in mind, Satan had thought out this question. Satan knew the answer to this. As did Adam. We're the ones who have neglected the exercise. We're the ones that haven't figured it out. Satan knew what he was doing. Adam knew what Satan was doing. Eve, however, was deceived. Again, Timothy identifies Eve as the first in sin. You may think that Adam was side by side with Eve. You think that when you read that the woman or the, the woman gave to the man who was with her, you assume that he was with her at the tree. I would tell you that that would be incorrect. We'll prove that later. I've proved it on the internet many times. But point out, let me just point out to you that it never says that he is with her at the tree. So where was he and where was she? And if he was with her at the tree and allowed her to take, to be outsmarted by Satan, then he has, uh, failed in his federal headship. That would be a sin and he would be the first in sin and Timothy said he was not. Mull that over while I continue. Note that Satan told the woman that she would not surely die. Oh, I gotta put this on the board somewhere, so here we go. Get rid of this. He said she would not surely die. Not surely 
die. Please do not call me Shirley. What is the difference between lest ye die and surely die? Or if you prefer, surely die. I'm trying to see if anybody's awake. I got one little tiny laugh. So discouraging. What's the difference between lest ye die and surely die? Satan was well aware that the woman would not physically die instantly. How did he know that? Notice Satan's closing arguments. Let's read it again. Genesis 3, 5. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's. Repeat that. You shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. What does be as God's mean? What's that mean? What does surely die mean? What does be as God's mean? That's his closing argument. That prevails. That's the statement that deceives the woman. That's the statement that makes her take the fruit. What's it mean? That his his piece de resistance, if you will. Obviously, I'm attempting to make the case that you shall be as God, knowing good from evil, is the predominant element of Satan's deception, the linchpin. Eve succumbs to this, you shall be as God's. Why? What's, a, what's that about? How did that work? Genesis 3.22, And the Lord said, let me, let me read this better than taking it off my paper here. Unfortunately, this is where the glasses have to come off. And the Lord God said, L-O-R-D is all capitalized. That tells you that's the tetragrammaton, right? That is the Y-H-V-H. And the Lord God said, Behold, behold. Oh, this is where I have to jump up and down. Uh, I'll hold on to something. Behold. Behold, that means something amazing is going to be said next. Behold, the man has is become as one of us to know good from evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in his dead condition. Or in other words, if he takes from the tree of life, he's now forever in death. Now we've got to stop that. That's the goodness of God on display. But I want to focus today right here. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good from evil. This is the divine counsel. This is the triune Godhead screaming out, Behold. It is not possible that Genesis 3.5 and Genesis 3.22 are unconnected, unrelated. Again, effect traceable to a cause. He said to her, you shall become as gods. And God says, behold, the man has become as one of us. That language is clearly Related and intentional and purposed. Everything in the Bible is. It isn't coincidence. It isn't that a writer couldn't come up with another word and just wrote, repeated the same phrase. He repeated the same phrase, the Holy Spirit using Moses, because he intended to, so that we could figure out what's going on here. This is for us. 
Genesis 2.17 is also with Genesis 3.5 and Genesis 3.22. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, we'll get rid of surely. It didn't work. Thank you, the woman in the back. What does surely die mean? What does be as God's mean? All of these verses are are all here together in the same bowl, if you will. Satan reconstructed Genesis 2.17 with the woman at Genesis 3.4-5, essentially saying to her, you will not surely die. That isn't true. If that isn't true, then why isn't it true? Did God make a mistake? Did he misspeak? Satan is saying it's not true. You will not surely die. God said, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan reproduces the language. You will not surely die in that day, but you will be as gods. And Eve buys it. That convinces her. How did that happen? What's this mean? If God made a mistake, then he is not omniscient. If he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnibenevolent, and no one is saved. Because he's our sacrifice. And our sacrifice is flawed. So we have no salvation. Oops. So he didn't make a mistake. So what? What, what's left? If he didn't make a mistake, then what's left is Satan is saying that he lied. If he lied, if God lies, then God is evil. If he is evil, the sacrifice is corrupted. If the sacrifice is corrupted, no, nobody is saved. The whole plan of salvation falls again. He says to Eve, Satan does, you will not surely die in that day, but you will be as gods. Remember, the woman desired to be wise. Read the text. I don't have time. I'm running out of time. She wants to be wise. What does that mean? Wise about what? She desired to be wise. She saw that it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes to make one wise. Genesis 3.6. The woman saw the poison as good, a delight, a means to great knowledge. The man did not see that. The woman was deceived. The man became like one of the us. What's the obvious question? One of the us. The us is the Elohim, is the triune God head, is the counsel of God, the divine counsel. The man, the man became like one of us. Who's missing from that sentence? Who else is there? Satan is there. He didn't become like God. Who else is there? And the woman, she's not identified. The man is identified. The man. Behold, the man has become one of us, of the triune Godhead. What's the next obvious question? How many are in the triune Godhead? Well, triune. Let's see. Yes, thank you. Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son. Which one did the man become as one of? Like, a type of. Oh, look here. Oh, look here. He's identified in the book of Romans as a type. Where was I? I am a trained professional. I need to know where I am occasionally. 
<laughs> Which one of the divine triune Godhead did the man become like, a type of, and why? And that's the great behold. That's why he says behold. He's telling us that the man, behold, this is a great truth here. The man has become like one of us. And for today, let's stay with, but you shall be as gods. I think it is obvious that Eve knew what that meant. When Satan said, you should be like God, she went, cool. I want to be like gods. And it is what? What's the word? He doesn't say, you will be like God. He says, you will be like gods. Gods is a what? When it is pluralized, it's a relative term. What's the question that we need to talk about now? We don't need to, but we should. How many gods? How many are there? Where did they come from? Who are they? How did they get to be gods? What is the definition of gods? I think Eve knew all of that. In other words, this is a specific benefit, something that Eve could anticipate because she knew what it meant, something she could expect. It is a defined acquisition as opposed to a generality. She, wise is not a generality or some emotional indeterminate state of being. Let me present it this way. Did Eve know who and how many the gods were? Was Satan himself one of them? Isaiah 14, 14. Put that on the board for the internet so they can find it in the midst of this chaotic debris field. They have stop action slow motion so they can find things. Was Satan himself one of them? Isaiah 14, 14 says that Satan intended to be a god. How many had the how many were with him? How many gods were there? Was Satan saying this to the woman, You will be like me and others that you know about who are wise, who possess a certain piece of information, a specific aspect, a, 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 a defined Knowledge about an explicit subject or area. You're going to know something about something. Not a general wisdom, but a you'll know a truth. One truth. And what's the context of this discussion? What's side by side? What's adjacent? Freely. Free will. You're going to know something about that. That only us in the God's Club know. You're going to be like us. You're going to be like me. You know information. You're going to have knowledge about a defined situation. If you want to think of it this way, what was the wise thing that Eve was seeking? Genesis 3.16 tells you what her motives were and why she was seeking it. That provides some clarity to her motives. She, uh, you can figure out what she was after because it has something to do with childbirth. 
And it has something to do with desire for her husband. Figure out why these two things fit into be as gods and you will and, and wise and you will understand Eve's motives or the woman's motives. Those are relatable consequences to Eve's desire to be wise. The punishment, if you will, the sentence at her trial when she is tried and she confesses, she throws herself on the mercy of God, and God, of course, uh, puts a skin of blood over her, and she is demonstrated to be redeemed. Adam, who named every single animal, every single one, that's a tremendous amount of capability, now renames her. He first named her Woman, now he names her Eve, mother of all things that will live by God's definition of life, which is a lot more complicated than the mere physical. It is the immortal. So, and he defines life as proximity, or if you will, relationship with him. Those who choose a relationship with him. Now, how much choosing do we have? How much will? That's a discussion for another day. But those who choose to believe him, believe in his goodness, they are the ones that have life as he defines it. But back to her trial. Consequences of her trial is the sentence. You're going to have sorrow and and in childbirth because of your desire to be wise with regard to your husband. To boil the question down, wise about what? What else was wise as Satan defined wise? Obviously, this is a discussion on the angelic realm equivalence to Genesis 3.23. What do I mean by that? Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Remember, Adam is the dust of the earth is taken, or the elements, the materials, the structure of Adam, the subatomic diameter, if you will, the molecular, the atomic. It's taken, and Adam is made out of that. And it is taken from outside of the garden, and he is placed inside of the garden. Now, he is sent outside of the garden to where he was made from. That's what it's saying to us. From where he was taken. Why did God make him outside of the garden to put him inside the garden? Why not make him from the stuff inside the garden? What's the difference between the outside of the garden and the inside of the garden? Is that an irrelevant detail? It can't be. It's mentioned twice. I wish we had time to do that, but we don't. All I want to point out today is the angelic equivalence to Genesis 3.23. God drives the man, the fallen man, from the garden. Mankind is now separated from God. The fall of man... What else has fallen at this point? I have a fallen man. Anybody else fallen? Clearly, Satan's fallen. How many has fallen with Satan? If that's correct English. Do I have fallen angels? Of course I do. I have a fallen man, a fallen woman, and I have fallen angels. So I'm wanting to know, how do those connect? There's a key difference 
when I start to both are separated from God, the fall of man compared to the fall of angels. The angels and man are both separated, but a key difference, and that's this: behold, the man has become like one of us. That's a very important difference. This undeceived Adam, who's a type of Christ. Satan made a relatively strong case to the woman; she shouldn't have fallen for it. Which is why she's got childbirth sorrow and desire for her husband problems. And Satan certainly was one of the gods. And he's not dead, is he? You can be like me. I'm not dead. So, I didn't die. Some believe, and I don't necessarily disagree, that he, in the form of this snake, serpent, who gets cursed, he's touching the tree. He's not just touching the tree, he's in the tree. He's all over the tree. And he's doing what? He's eating the poison. And he's not dying. There he is. Satan was one of the gods, and he is not dead, and he's certainly fallen. He certainly has chosen to reject God. That, however, disproves his premise. And Adam would have noticed that. Satan knew the woman was not going to be immediately extinguished. Because how? How did he know that she was not going to be struck dead immediately? She was not going to suffer instantaneous physical death when she ate the poison. How did he know? Because he isn't dead. Satan knew cessation of existence was impossible. He knew that. He's from the spiritual realm. How do you cease to exist a spiritual component? A a spiritual component cannot be subject to a physical process. Death is a physical process. We are living souls. He never describes us as a body. He always describes us as living souls. So we're not subject. Us, our personhood, our existence is not subject to a physical process. And Satan knew that. And exhibit A is Satan himself. Satan knew something and God, I'm sorry, Satan knew something and was still functioning. And he said, you will be just like me. You will not surely die. He won't kill you. I know it. Go ahead. Take it. He's lying about Shirley. One small smile. Satan said, be like me, you will not die. And Eve said, she would be like Satan and the other gods. She would know what they knew about something. And Satan offered tangibility. He offered perception. The woman could see. She could touch it. It's a physical experience. She could take it. It's a physical act. Aha. That's an important. Look at me, Satan says. Touch me. I am eating or I have eaten of the tree. I have touched the tree and I'm now wise. I have something. I know something that you can only know if you do what I have done. 
God is lying to you. You will not surely die. I am still alive. He could have said this, couldn't he? Eat the fruit and you will be like one of us. Or you will be like us. Oh my. That sounds familiar. I think I can make the case that that is Genesis 3.22. So you will be like one of us, be like God's, or you will be, behold the man is like one of us, Genesis 3.22. What follows all of that is nakedness, I have to hurry now, the ashamed nakedness, the fig leaf covering, which I will tell you is a vestment or the ephod, if you will, from the uh, high priest's garments. The woman at this point now, she has taken the poison and she knows something. She knows she's deceived. And she goes to her husband. She And I believe that the husband uh, recognizes that she's dead. And so I look someplace else where the last Adam is in a situation where he knows the bride is dead. I'm going to tell you that next week we'll deal with the cup of Gethsemane and the fruit that Adam takes. So we'll have that relationship between the two Adams. And thus we see the aspect of nakedness and ashamedness. Ashamed nakedness is a realization that God has withdrawn himself from sin and that he has separated himself, that he has left his temple. That's Ezekiel 10.18. Again, most of this next week. God places barriers between himself and those who know evil. Freely coming into his presence is no longer given. And Adam was ashamed of his changed condition. Death is separation. Ashamed nakedness is death. Unashamed nakedness is life. Adam was dead and ashamed. And the meaning of surely die is therefore revealed. And next week, we will be back dealing with Shirley.